Price control dates as far back as the late 3rd century AD, when Roman Emperor Diocletian attempted to set maximum prices for all commodities. It is reported, however, that he had little success with this policy. Closer to home, the United States of America for the first time introduced price controls nationally in 1906 during World War I. This enactment of price controls was part of what was called the Hepburn Act, which was sponsored by Republican Congressman William Peters Hepburn. This new National Price Controls Act permitted the United States federal government to set maximum freight rates for railroads. During World War II, the U.S. federal government initiated an extensive federal price control and rationing apparatus to combat high inflation caused by the war. The U.S. government last used broad-based price controls in a series of schemes from 1971 to 1974, following the withdrawal of the dollar from the gold standard. Today, many developing countries, including the Bahamas, continue to use price controls in an attempt to make control items affordable for the vulnerable in society. But are price controls really effective in combating inflation? Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of CFAL Talks. I am Pamela Ferguson, Vice President of Investments here at CFAL, and joining me in studio today are Lachelle White, Investments Manager, and Angelo Butler, Senior Analyst at CFAL. In today's episode, our panel will discuss whether the government's use of price controls is effective in making controlled items affordable. So let's start with the very basic. What is price controls and how does it work? Well, price controls refer to the legal minimum or maximum that um, you can charge for a good or service. It's usually set forth um, by the government. So the government would do either a specific range of goods or one specific good and set the maximum that um, a wholesaler or retailer can charge on these goods. And in terms of wages, we have the minimum wage, which is a price control as well. And it would set the minimum um, that you can have on wages paid um, to employees. And I think it's important that to highlight the up and down nature of it. Um, because I think when we think of price controls, we only think about the government stopping things uh, from going up. But there's also the aspect of providing a floor like the minimum wages and making sure, you know, there's a minimum that um, persons are paid. So like mentioned, um, you know, it's mostly done on things like food, housing, some countries do other things, but, you know, it, it's all about the government and their views and how they think, you know, what things they think should be controlled. A lot of time it's optics and politics involved in it. Um, but as we'll discuss, whether sometimes it makes economic sense or financial sense in the long run. So if we bring it closer home, on October 17, 2022, the Davis administration announced the implementation of temporary price controls on selected food items for six months. So that is set to expire, I think, about April 2023. And for pharmaceutical drugs, a three-month temporary price control on select items. So on the pharmaceutical side, initially the price markup were from 15 to 18% wholesalers and 35 to 40% for retailers. So, so let's say, for instance, you get a drug, you bought it in wholesale, and let's say when it works out, um, each one of the product or each one of the items is $10 per item. 
So by the time you land those drug in the country and there's freight charge, there's VAT, there's um, custom duties, let's say that drug price goes to $20 per item. Then the government is saying for the wholesalers, initially with the initial price margins, you can make between 15 to 18%. You could mark up the price on that drug item, which is $20 per item. You could mark it up to $23 or $23.60 per item. So here it is, a, an item that's at the border when you factor in all of the duty, the VAT, the cost. You could only sell this item for, let's go with the higher number, $23.60. And then to the retailers, they're saying it's a 35 to 40% markup on top of that price. So the retailers can only sell this. We take the higher percentage for $33. So sometimes people think that, you know, these, these businesses are getting all of this money, but the, the wholesaler only has a spread of $3.60 and the retailer only has a spread of $9.44. And that is prior to your labor cost. That's your overhead. And your electricity bill. That's prior to all of those things, those costs being factored into that price that you have to sell this product at. And in most cases, and in some cases, I guess, they can be selling this product at a loss. So I really think it's important to note that when we talk about price controls, because the very policy that the government is using to supposedly help the vulnerable can be hurting businesses and cost people their jobs and it can have the reverse effect than they intended it to have. And I think in the Bahamas, we don't have a lot of data. I think that's a big problem. So, you know, the government may have some of the data in terms of how profitable businesses, certain businesses are, um, what are their actual margins? You know, if I want to go online and look at CVS's margins for its pharmaceutical unit, you can find that info, right? And so you can see, okay, they're making 60% gross margin. Their operating expenses are 30%. So at the end of the day, they can still make a 30% margin. But in the Bahamas, we don't really know, right? We don't know. We just assume, like you said, oh, this business making so much money. They're so big. They so, you know, so I think if we had data, um, but we don't have a lot of public companies. So it's hard for us as a public to know, like, you know, is this really effective? Is it fair? Um, of course, public wants cheaper prices and politically it looks good. But at the end of the day, you know, is it fair? Is it making sense? Um, is it, you know, beneficial to the wider society? But I, I think government has access to the data. Now, are they utilizing the data to make policies a whole different story? But they do have access to this data. They can determine and they could have determined what was the markup generally via survey that, that persons are getting on, on these goods. Yeah, I think that they do have access to the data. And even if they didn't have it, Directly, they could have asked the pharmacies, like, what is um, what is your overall um, gross margin and your net margin? I think at the outset, a lot of the public were angry because they were like, the people are going to earn 20% in profits. And are they crazy? Why do they want any more than that? And it's like, no, this is a 20% markup. It's not a 20% profit that they're earning. It's they have to pay, they have bills to pay and they have to actually buy the good and bring the good into the country. So I think on that stance, it was just sort of like, you know, people were thinking that the businesses were just being really greedy. So what are some of the areas in the Bahamas where price control is currently in effect? 
Well, as we mentioned earlier, you have minimum wage that employees can pay um, their workers. And then you also have the bread basket items in the grocery store. So the markup is limited on what the businesses can charge for those items, such as butter and eggs, I think flour and rice. So those are the things that are in effect. And we also have the petroleum, the mm-hmm. gas. Um, we have fixed margins for for the retailers. Yeah, they are in the papers just about every day. Um Complaining about it, of course, the price of fuel went extremely high over the past year. And so, you know, their revenue looks much higher, but um, their margin was, remains the same. It's going to cause them more business license fees. And so, so far, they have not had any um, success in that. Um, I guess, again, the government is trying to keep goods as low as possible um, in the interim. And so... I guess we'll see what comes out of those negotiations. But but I agree with their argument because I think right now for gasoline, wholesale is 33 cents per gallon and then on diesel, 18 cents per gallon. And then for retailers, it's 54 cents per gallon for gasoline and 34 cents per gallon for diesel. But the government gets over a dollar in taxes. And it's similar to with the price controls for the food and the pharmaceutical goods, right? The government gets its fat for both of those categories of, of items and now wanting the businesses to reduce their profit margin. Now, I get it. The government needs its, its revenue. I get it. But I think if we are all in this together, we have to look at ways to make life easier for the vulnerable. And I think this policy or this strategy of asking everybody else to make sacrifices, but the government continues to make its large margin I think it's not successful. And we're seeing the pressure where people are pushing back on the various types. And a good example of that is the VAT on medications. We didn't have VAT on medication before. So, I mean, now you have to pay 10%. And the same thing for the bread basket items. It wasn't, even though the VAT, the overall VAT rate decreased from 15 to 10%, something that you were paying 0% on, you now have to pay 10% on. Mm-hmm. So why in a free market, would any government even want to force price controls on businesses? I think if you, again, follow what was happening last year, you saw these significant increases in inflation above what's considered the norm. You know, as much as we don't like it, there's an acceptable level of inflation, according to economists. So prices do go up just about every year. But at the same time, you know, it's not supposed to go up 10, 11%, as we were saying. And, you know, the Bahamas can't really control inflation, right? We don't produce a lot of goods. We don't produce a lot of raw materials. And so we pretty much import. We just take whatever price, in essence, people sell goods to us at. And I think, you know, there was a lot of pressure on the government, a lot of complaining and um, rightfully so. Um, prices are ridiculous. So, you know, we have all been complaining about the cost of goods. Um, we just haven't kept up. And so, you know, the government, I think, in feeling some of that pressure was like, what can we do? And I think this was a quick solution to say, okay, see, we're trying. Um, I think the government also, you saw where they reduced duty on certain goods and then they reported that those weren't really being passed on according to some government officials. And so now I think this was a way to show the public that, okay, we're trying. We are looking to get the cost of goods down. Whether it will actually be effective um, remains to be seen. Um, in my view, I don't think anything ever goes down, it seems. So you know, who knows if it's working, um, but I guess we'll see. Yeah, I think um, for us, it's 
very difficult, like Angela mentioned, because we import so much and also because we don't have control our own monetary policy. So we don't have the tools that other countries such as the US, um, Germany or UK, the UK would have because they can um, really manipulate their interest rates easily. But we are pegged to the US dollar. So we don't really have that much um, control over our monetary policy. And also I noted the decrease in customs duties for some items. I think spinach maybe was on there, but the price of Everything has gone up all around the world. I read an article, I think it was last month or maybe the month before that said like iceberg lettuce was like $11 in Canada. So it's like you reduce the duty on this, but you know, the price still went up because of their supply chain issues and everything going on around the world. So, I mean, inflation is really no one's fault. It's certainly not the government's fault, but I think that it was sort of a knee-jerk response. They were under pressure to do something and they just decided, okay, let's go with the price controls which may not have been um, the best solution. And I think they should have proven it. If you're saying that you reduce duty on certain goods, but the price didn't go down, then get the division that's responsible for price control to really analyze it. Ask for the numbers. How much did you bring this in at? This is the reduced duty. And then, so let's see your price. And then you could be able to speak, the government would be able to speak to it intelligently. We reduced duty on select items, but the margin went up twofold threefold, as opposed to just saying that, because like you mentioned, iceberg lettuce in Canada is $11 for a bunch and we import everything. So definitely if the prices are going up around the world, then when we bring that in, it's going to come in at a higher price. And then when you add the VAT, you add the custom duty and the margins in order for businesses to make money. And we know we have a problem with BPL because that's a very high margin. And we were just told recently that that is going, uh, our fuel charge is going up. So all of these are part of the cost that businesses just try to recoup so that they can be profitable. So there are varying theories out there about the effects of price controls. What are some of them? Well, economists usually believe that the price controls would lead to shortages and that's simply because of the supply and demand challenges. So if the, if the government um, mandates a supplier to reduce the margins on its goods, they would stop producing as much. But because the price is lower for the consumer, they will demand more. So you'll have this supply and demand mismatch, which could often um, lead to shortages. I mean, that's the basically the textbook theory of it. I guess in the real world, you would have some sort of um, deviances or differences. But I think that for, I know you'd mentioned um, about the US implementing price controls in the 1900s. When they did put those price controls, um, they were done um, in tandem. You couldn't buy as much as you wanted to. So, but that was in the 1900s. I think that today we certainly can have um, some more innovative ideas. And I know we'll get to it later and discuss the IDB's um the IDB's opinion on this. But I think that, I, like I said before, this was just a knee-jerk reaction. And I think that it was just something quick, like we already have this in place. So let's just add some more goods to the list. Yeah. Um, and I like the shell mentioned, um, you know, in theory, it says so if I was making 10 cents on every can of tomato paste and you tell me I can only make three cents, then, you know, I'm just going to stop selling tomato paste. So, so that's where the idea of, of the shortages comes in. But of course, you know, there's a lot of other factors. So a food store is not going to just stop selling tomato paste, right? So they may decide, okay, this is going to be, as they call them, loss leaders or something I don't really make profit on. But at the end of the day, it still helps me to sell pasta, 
right? And so I maybe raise the price on pasta by three cents to kind of offset. So you'll see a lot of the goods that are known bread basket or price control tend to go up along with the regular increases that we're seeing now. Um, so, you know, it, it's not a perfect one for one, um, reduction in supply as, as the textbooks, um, say, um, but it'll be good to, you know, the more competition you have, I think the better it is, um, in terms of preventing the other goods from being gouged and, and taking advantage of And consumers. that's what's happening now. I think, Angelo, with the bread basket items, you have those popular items. And so while when, when stores are making a loss on those items, they're going to go up in other areas um, in the store. But then only the two major supermarket, two or three major supermarkets will probably be able to sustain that. Um, when you look at the smaller supermarkets that only have a few, maybe a hundred or so items, if that much in their stores, they don't have that luxury to say, well, okay, if the can of corned beef, um, if I'm losing money on corned beef, I can go up on pasta in the store. So they are challenged. And this is one of the issues that the IDB mentioned, you know, this type of policy disadvantage small to medium sized businesses in the process. And I think, you know, how this was mentioned as a temporary measure, that's another thing. Um, you run the risk of putting small businesses out of operation. And then in the long term, you create even bigger monopolies, right? Because the bigger ones will survive. And then when these price controls fall away, they have less competition, which means less competition on prices. So, you know, it's a domino effect. And, you know, if it's just a three-month thing, I mean, will it really have any meaningful effect? And I think as the IDB had mentioned, there are more um, appropriate solutions to assist those in need than um, these blanket measures that sometimes don't achieve what you're intending to. Well, well, theory has it that price control can be very beneficial when imposed on monopolies. Do Lord Jesus, let the government put a price control on BPL. <laughs> Could they please? <laughs> or when the market is imperfect, please, Lord, allow the government, touch their heart and they will put price control on BPL. I think that's where we need <laughs> price control um, on surcharges. For BPL. I don't think that would happen. <laughs> but it's not hard to pray. This is press powerful. So I'm praying. <laughs> I'm believing. <laughs> so one of the areas where price control can be utilized is rent, rental units. Do you think price control in this segment would be effective in the Bahamas? Well, in New Providence in particular, we have a supply and demand problem with um, rental units, um, available rental units. So I don't know how um, price control would exacerbate that. I think that maybe the government can look into, I know that they do like maybe rent subsidies um, to persons um, who are unable to afford um, to pay their rent. And they can probably also they can probably also look at um, stabilizing rents, doing rent stabilization by limiting the amount of um, the percentage amount that a landlord can go up on rent, which is a, a form of, of price control. But I don't think that we can have like how in New York you have like rent control departments. I don't think that would be appropriate, especially given um, the supply and demand challenges um, on in New Providence in particular. Yeah, I think the government would have to go on a massive um, building spree to provide units at those costs. Because even if you look at now, you know, in the past, you were just, a lot of persons built duplexes as, um, you know, housing and long-term solution. And they said, oh, we could rent this fee enough to pay the mortgage and and all of that. But now with how expensive things are, um, you know, if people hear that the government is going to control how much they can rent for, it will discourage a lot of private investment, particularly in what should be affordable or um, everyday housing 
Um, so, you know, the government, I think, will have to drive that in terms of building out units that they can then control the rent on. And a lot of things, it seems, um, you know, a lot of the social programs tend to fall on the government to make sure people can afford um, certain things. And a lot of that needs to come in the form of subsidies, I think, as opposed to controlling businesses. Government doesn't seem very effective at managing a lot of things. So, you know, I'm a bit cautious about the government getting involved in a lot of of private (laughs) transactions. One of the areas where rent affordability is measured is the share of a person's rental cost to its monthly income. And international standard is that should be 30%. If you're paying more than 30% of your income in rent or mortgage, you're cost burdened. And if you're paying in excess of 50, then you're severely unburdened. And one of the areas where I feel that minimum wage helped from that $210 to $260 is on the rental side. If you have two persons in the house making minimum wage. So if you have two persons in the house making minimum wage, when you take the $650 that the University of the Bahamas Government and Policy Institute a Living Wage Survey um, stated was the appropriate amount for two bedroom in the Bahamas of $650, when you take that, then it's like 29% of, of rental costs to overall income. But for the individual, the individual, it's still high. It's over. 50%. And when you look at it, um, if you take that 260 and when you, when you calculate average monthly rental income, um, for a person on minimum wage is about $1,100, 100 thereabout. And you take 30% of that, um, then persons, there should be rental stock in the country for at least $338 or $350. And I think this is where I think where we say there's a disconnect between government policy and what, and the data, right? Because we are building homes, building homes that the mortgage will be seven, $800, $900 a month. But they are saying that if someone is making minimum wage and they pay 30% of their income, for rental, that should be around 338. Let's round it up to $350. Do we have housing or rental stock in this country where persons, I mean, decent accommodations, where people can pay $330 or $350 a month? I think we would be hard pressed to find um, such accommodation. I think that you're right, Pam. We keep building houses that are not affordable for the the average Bahamian. We need to look into building smaller accommodation and maybe have common areas, um, maybe build it around a park or something. But like you said, the government doesn't seem to be paying attention to the data and using this data to make any sort of targeted policy decisions. I think you would even be hard pressed to find a two bedroom today for six fifty. Um that that's decent. So even that tells you how it um, you know, how unaffordable it's um, getting. And like I said, I think if, you know, you tell persons the maximum they can rent a two-bedroom for a 650, that gives you, you know, on a duplex monthly income of $1,300 before expenses and, and all of that. So, no, you know, it's just not going to be viable anymore. Um, and, and I think you'll severely limit the new supply of housing going forward. So while I, I disagree with any type of rent control, price controls on rental, we do have a housing problem. And I think the government needs to look at the data and find solutions to deal with it. And when the minimum wage increased, it was said it would affect a third of the workforce. 
And in May of 2019, I think the workforce was in excess of 230,000 persons. So a third of the workforce, minimum wage will affect. Then it's, it's upon the government not to give these homes free to persons, but allow homes to be built where persons can pay at least about $350 for decent accommodations. The IDB branded the Davis administration's price control as a poorly targeted mechanism. What is the crux of the IDB's argument Well, I read the report and the IDB was basically saying that the response by the government was not targeted and they did um, praise them for the increase in the minimum wage, which they said would um, help the most vulnerable in society. But for the price controls, um, it's not necessarily um, going to trickle down to the poor and it's basically a transfer of income from businesses to consumers And also they made, which I thought was very interesting, that they just basically said um, what the government did with the price control is not going to affect their budget at all. (laughs) So basically the government just put the onus on the businesses um, to help um, combat inflation. Maybe have to see if it's going to work, but I don't think that this would be... um, It wasn't the best um, policy response for um, the most vulnerable in our society. I found it interesting that they said that maybe they could... Um, distribute sand dollars um, to persons to purchase um, goods and services. And this would also help um, increase the circulation of sand dollar um, in our economy. But the, they just basically said the response was not targeted enough. Yeah, I think um, I think one of the main things they spoke about was, for example, like the RISE program and the transfers, which is more sort of targeted um, assistance to those who need it. I think, you know, as much as we don't like taxes and so forth, I think, you know, you have to make those who can pay, pay um, what they can. And of course, sometimes that means we pay for incompetence and, you know, when the government does something wrong, um, it costs us. But, you know, I reference, for example, the BPL um, situation. Now, you know, you saw in the newspaper some of the comments about the subsidy um, or how it was viewed that the government was subsidizing the cost of fuel um, for like large hotels and so forth, right? By keeping the price low. And I think that's a a missed opportunity in the sense that, um, you know, if that was the reason we didn't renew the hedge, I think that was a missed opportunity, right? Because I think if you look at it now, they're going to charge us more for it than they should be charging us to recoup what was paid. So, you know, I think we should have still, for example, gotten the fuel at a cheap price. And if we, if BPL needed some additional cash, um, you know, charge the market rate or whatever and use the access to provide assistance to to those who need. But right now we keep using blanket measures, giving everyone subsidies, you know, so when the cost of egg is controlled, it's controlled not just for those who need it, but also those who don't need it, right? And so, you know, you keep saying this, that the government should provide more targeted assistance rather than these blanket scenarios because, you know, it seems like we just keep trying to find ways to make regressive tax structures progressive and, and there's just no way, right? At the end of the day, you have to provide assistance to those who need it by taxing those who can afford to um, pay taxes. And I think the, the IDB brought an interesting argument to the mix. And I think it's a teachable moment for this administration and future administrations in that these subsidies or these target, these measures should target the vulnerable in your society. And I think for too long, government has just been making blanket policy statement that where people who don't need it receive it. 
And we mentioned the hotels. We give them concession after concession after concession when they should be paying more because they can afford to pay more. So I think this is very important. You know, the measures should be targeted to those that are vulnerable because there are some people in society who can't pay. Allow them to pay. But when you move monies from businesses, which include small and medium-sized businesses, pass it on to consumers and consumers, some consumers who don't need it, then the policy to me is not effective and is not successful. Whereas if you target these persons by the stamp system or, or, or cash transfer to help them, it's more measured, targeted, and it's more effective in reaching the people you intend to reach. So I think that's a very important um, argument to put into the mix. And I think the government officials should learn from that, when you're implementing um, these policies, try to use um, strategies that will target those who are really in need. Well, Michelle and Angelo, we have come to the end of another episode of C-File Talks. Thank you so much for contributing to this discussion and thank you, audience, for tuning in. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit our website at www.cfile.com and show your support. And thank you, C-File, for sponsoring this episode. Until next time. <laughs>